So if you were with us last week, I uh, started uh, sharing uh, a three-week series on what I think are the important aspects or characteristics of what it is to be a Jesus follower, which we say in our uh, the preamble to our meetings and the mission statement of our church that we're trying to follow Jesus on the way of radical love. So that we're trying to be Jesus followers here. Trying. That's the, the key word there. And the three aspects I've highlighted that I think are of primary importance. Last week I talked about uh, being agents of reconciliation and that we would try to craft in this space, this house, a place of reconciliation, reconciling folks to, uh, to, to the divine other we name God, uh, to each other, and to ourselves, and to, to all of creation. That that's one of the primary goals of what a church is and should be about. And this week I would like to address the idea of compassion and how important that is in this work of reconciliation. And then, God willing, next week I'll share about some thoughts to get us thinking uh, about the importance of wisdom and understanding in this process, in this work of reconciliation. And so I'd, I'd like to begin by saying, if we are belligerent in our work of reconciliation, that it's highly counterproductive. It's not what you you need to come here. We need to do this. We need to sit down right now. We need to be reconciled. So just sit down. We're going to do it. It's not helpful in the work of reconciliation. Reconciliation is humble and it's inviting rather than coercing. And I'm suggesting that our efforts towards being a people of reconciliation must be marinated, must be marinated, or fertilized, to use another metaphor, in compassion. If we're not compassionate about it, we're going to not get anywhere. And so compassion is a necessary ingredient in this work of reconciliation. So at this point, you may be sitting there wondering, well, what the heck does what you're saying now have anything to do with the text Judy just read to us? Because that scared the hell out of me. And the text that Judy read certainly is worthy of a George Lucas or Steven Spielberg treatment. I mean, we had shaking and quaking of pillars. There was smoke everywhere. There were these incredible beings that were hovering around flying and that had eyes everywhere. And they were incredibly mysterious. And so what the heck does that have to do with compassion? Well, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> so... To give you some context, the book of Isaiah is one of my favorite books in the Bible. I love the prophet Isaiah. This was recorded for us by our faith ancestors some 2,800 years ago or so, give or take. And what I love about the book of Isaiah, the, the, the book of Isaiah in many ways reminds me of a James Bond movie. I'm sure some of you are familiar with James Bond. He is a uh, movie uh, star that looks a lot like me. And um, 
I'm teasing. My wife says when she closes her eyes, I look like Sean Connery, but that's... <laughs> I digress. So, the book of Isaiah, in many ways for me, is like a James Bond movie. Because in a James Bond movie, normally, the first five minutes of the film have little, if anything, to do with the plot of the movie. The first five minutes are just there to give us a taste, a flavor, for who this cat, James Bond, really is and what he can do. So the, the movie may begin with James sitting at the end of a hard day in a little pub somewhere on an alpine ski mountain, uh, drinking a martini, shaken, not stirred, you know, just trying to relax. And then in the middle of it, out of the ceiling, five ninja dudes will show up with their death stars trying to throw at him to kill him. And he grabs the table and deflects all the death stars. And then he may use the table as a ski to go down the alpine ski mountain to get away from these dudes who just happen to have jet skis or snow, snowmobiles. And they've got rifles now, and they're shooting at him. And he comes to the cliff, and you just say, well, there's no way out. He's done. And then he goes off the cliff, and they're left back watching as he sails off into the air. And unbeknownst to everybody under his tuxedo jacket, there is a parachute with a Union Jack on it. And he floats safely to the ground and escapes. And then the movie cuts. And we're in downtown London, and it's raining and dreary, because it's always raining and dreary in London. And he goes into a nondescript building. And there is, behind the desk, his boss, M, with a new uh, portfolio for him because there's a major threat to the entire world of humanity and only James can say and now the movie begins but the first five minutes are just a flavor for what James can do well that's what the book of Isaiah is like <laughs> the first five chapters are simply a flavor and a taste for what this prophet is like but the story begins in chapter six in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. And Isaiah's world is rocked and shaken by what this text is normally referred to as the call of Isaiah. Isaiah has this incredible experience where he sees God. And I left the very heavy paternalistic language in for effect God and king and lord and majesty and the shaky, just for, for effect. But Isaiah has this incredible experience with this divine other, and it shakes him to the core. In fact, I would say the three important aspects of this experience recorded for us 2,800 years ago or so is that Isaiah had an inward, or uh, I'm sorry, an upward experience, which led to an inward experience, which was followed by an outward experience. Upward, inward, outward. That was the experience of Isaiah. Isaiah saw a vision of God that terrified him, realized how awesome and big and profound God is. And it shook him to the core. It shook him inside. He realized how puny and hard his own heart was. He realized how selfish 
and silly and nonsensical. So much of what he was concerned about paled in comparison to the vision he was given. It broke his heart open to realize that he's just a part of all of us. And we're all in this together. We're all on this planet together. There is this divine being and there's us. And we're just trying to do the best we can. It broke his hardened heart open so that when the Holy One says, who can we now send to speak for us in humility and brokenness, Isaiah can say, send me, I'll go. I see the whole picture. I see what's going on. And in humility, he can go forward as a prophet. And, and I love what Rabbi Abraham Heschel tells us. Abraham Heschel was a genius, a great spiritual writer of the 20th century. And, and he, he says, the prophets don't tell us, they don't predict the future so much, like what's going to happen tomorrow. It's not that. The prophets tell us how God feels. How God feels about the widows and the orphans and the refugees. How God feels about the poor and the outcast. That's what the prophets tell us, is how God feels. And so Isaiah's heart is broken open and he can now go forth and speak on behalf of God. And I would say the work that was done in Isaiah was a work of compassion. It shattered his preconceptions about who's in and who's out, who God likes and who God doesn't, what kind of person you have to be for God to like and what kind of person you don't. That was all shattered in his vision. And he could come forward and speak to us. So that's what I think is the primary thing going on in this text. Now, in my research and studies over 50 plus, 50 plus years, I've been doing this as long as David and Linda have been married. And uh, so I've been doing this a long time. And in my studies, there have been a number of people throughout history that have had these kinds of experiences that have so altered and shaped them that it's uh, important for us to know. One of the most important for me personally, there's a man named Thomas Merton who died in 1968. He was a Roman Catholic monk. And he is my most trusted spiritual guide. I read from Merton, I was telling Judy, I read from Merton almost every day, or Diana I was telling. Almost every day I read Merton. Merton grew up the son of an artist and he was pretty much a vagabond in his early years. And he did all the things that young men normally do. He drank and smoked and chased ladies and had romantic affairs without any love in them and just tries to cause trouble. He, he was very brilliant, and that got him into trouble. But he just was uh, roused about. Well, somehow, he got converted to Roman Catholicism and then on December 10th, 1941, just before the Americans entered World War II, Thomas Merton fled to a monastery in Kentucky and became a Cistercian monk, the kind of guys that live behind the walls and sing Gregorian chants, and he did that. And for 17 years, 
He worked really, 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 really hard at being a really, really good monk. He wanted to make himself a saint. And so he would chant with the monks five to seven hours a day, or five to seven times a day. He worked very, very hard manual labor out in the fields growing crops. And 17 years he gave himself to this. And then, on March 19th, 1958, 17 years into this thing, he had to go to Louisville, Kentucky, which was nearby the Monastery of Gethsemane, for a medical procedure, and he got out of the hospital and he was waiting for his ride back to the monastery. And he's just walking around downtown Louisville. And he records in his journal from March, March 19th in the year 1958, this is what happened to him. He said, in Louisville, at the corner of Fourth and Walnut, at the center of the shopping district, I was suddenly overwhelmed with the realization that I loved all these people, that they were mine and I was theirs, and that we could not be alien to each other or to one another, even though we were total strangers. It was like waking from a dream of separateness, a spurious self-isolation in the social world, the world of renunciation and supposed holiness that he was trying to craft within the walls of the monastery. And Merton goes on to say, this sense of liberation from this illusionary difference was such a relief and such a joy to me that I almost laughed out loud. I have the immense joy of being a human being, a member of the race in which God has become incarnate. As if the sorrows and stupidities of the human condition could overwhelm me, now I realize what we all are. And if only everybody could realize this. But it can't be explained. There's no way of telling people that they're walking around shining like the sun. If only they could see themselves as they really are. If only we could see each other this way all the time, there would be no more war, no more hatred, no more cruelty, no more greed. I suppose the big problem would be that we would all fall down and worship each other. But this can't be seen. It can only be believed and understood by a peculiar gift. I have no program for this seeing. It is only given. But the gate of heaven is everywhere. So Merton, like Isaiah, had this incredible experience that broke them open and made them more compassionate. In fact, this event in Louisville at 4th and Walnut changed Merton's writing his career in front of the next 13 years. He devoted himself to, to studying Zen Buddhism and Taoism and writing about peace and writing against racism, uh, positions that were not popular for a Catholic monk to be writing about in the early 1960s. He realized he was a member of all of humanity. And I would suggest anybody that has 
what they call a spiritual experience. If it makes them elitist, or I'm better than you, or I'm smarter than you, or you need to just, that that is bogus. That is contrary to everything I have studied in my life about authentic spiritual experiences. Now, spiritual experiences, the results should be that we feel more connected to absolutely everybody and everything. And we realize how interrelated we all are and that we need each other and that we're together on this planet, with this planet, with the environment, with creation, with the animals, with the plants. Together, we're with this. That that permeates an authentic spiritual experience. Now, there is a very wise Zen master who says, having an awakening like this, what I'm describing, is an accident. You can't make it happen. You, you, you can't fast long enough to make it happen. You can't study enough. There's, you can't, there's nothing you can do to make this happen. But he says with a smile, if you want an accident, you can go places where accidents are likely to happen. Like maybe a church. Or you might read things to help accidents happen, like spiritual books, spiritual reading. Or you might employ spiritual practices where accidents could happen, like meditation and prayer and contemplation. So you put yourself in a position for an accident to happen, were one to happen, to break us open, to liberate us from our petty agendas and opinions that are so destructive and hurtful. So, how can... There's two things I'm going to suggest to us to help accidents happen. And the first is prayer. I've already alluded to it. But I'm talking about a particular kind of prayer that is called contemplation. And, and contemplation is a wordless prayer. It, it, it's not filled with verbiage. It's not going to God, the divine other, and saying, I want, I want, I need, I need, I need. You better, you better, you better. In the name of Jesus, amen. It's not that kind of a prayer. It's a prayer that is just quieting ourselves and trying to listen trying to connect, that if God were to say something, then we might be able to hear. It's hard to talk and hear at the same moment. So it's about getting quiet, quieting our insides. It's about turning off the TV set and putting the newspaper down. Because truth be told, when was the last time spending an hour with Rachel Maddow or Anderson Cooper or Sean Hannity or Tucker Carlson. When, when was the last time you spent an hour with those folks and your heart felt more open <laughs> and you felt more compassion? <laughs> and, and so I'm suggesting just turn them off, put the newspaper down, the New York Times, it's all there, all the news that's fit to print and make you really, really scared. It's just the, all there. Just put it away and sit down and get quiet and listen and see what might happen. And now, there's many ways to do that. You may do that on a hike in nature. I know for myself, my great place of contemplation is Cape Blanco, 
uh, the westernmost point in Oregon, out into the Pacific. There's normally a 40, 50 mile an hour wind. I hold on to the pilings, look over the bluff, let the wind beat the crap out of me, and I see how vast the sky and ocean is, and I realize how little and frail I am, and I thank God, thank God, I'm just a silly little man on a great big planet trying to do the best I can. That's my favorite prayer place. But you have, may have your own. It may be holding a grandbaby or a great-grandbaby. It may be listening to some incredible classical music. Who knows? Whatever, however you connect, connect is all I'm suggesting. Because there's another mystic that I want to reference to you this morning that has been so helpful, and, and that is Julian of Norwich. Julian of Norwich lived at the end of the 14th century, beginning of the 15th century. She was uh, a Christian uh, uh, lady monk, and she was incredibly insightful. She lived at a time not unlike our own. There was a, there was a, a virus then. It wasn't coronavirus. It was called the Black Plague, and it wiped out 50% of the humanity on the European continent. So instead of a 2% death rate like COVID, the Black Death had a 50% death rate. Wiped out half the people alive in Europe. There was also the Hundred Years' War going on, not unlike military conflicts we see in Russia and Ukraine right now, and other parts of the planet. The heretics were burned at the stake. In fact, where her monastic cell was, it was within distance of smelling the charred flesh from people that were burned as heretics. The economy was depressed. People were uh, rioting and there were labor strikes. And there were people being scapegoated. Jews were being scapegoated for all the problems as in our culture right now. Uh, Immigrants coming across the southern border and Muslims are scapegoated in our culture. So there was scapegoating. So all this was going on. But it didn't affect Julian, who had this experience with this divine other. And she wrote about Mother God. In fact, her insights and theology of Mother God were the most profound until the 20th century came along, and we've had some feminist theologians to help out. But she she reworked the whole image of God in a powerful and profound way. And two of, the, two of the big quotes from Julian of Norwich. She came to realize that all things have their beginning in the love of God. And then at the end of her life, the end of her writing is her most famous quote, where basically she says, just relax. Chillax. Settle down. Because all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. In the end, it's all going to work out. Relax. It's taken care of. So that's the message of Julian of Norwich from her contemplative prayer. And, not, and she was not inactive. She helped many, 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 many people. And so to conclude, I, I, I want to give us two things to help us as we endeavor to become more compassionate. The one I've referenced, prayer, contemplative prayer, however you do that, and you consult that with spiritual reading. When I begin a prayer time or a quiet time, I generally read a little spiritual something, a couple of paragraphs, to, to sort of stretch my soul out. You know, you don't want to start heavy exercise 
without stretching out first. So I like to stretch my soul out by reading some Merton or Nowen or somebody that I like, whoever you may, Pema Chodron, whoever can be. And, but the other is to get involved. Here's my second point. So prayer and doing things for others, service to others, elicits compassion. So I can tell you from my own life, I'm planning on retiring at the end of August as a hospice chaplain, and it's a very difficult decision for me because working as a hospice chaplain is so helpful for me because when I get into my own head and I get annoyed and angry at all the craziness in Washington, in Ashland, and wherever, in Ukraine, and I get so upset and I get, why just, why won't people listen? Why won't they listen to me? I know so much better than everybody else. Why won't they? And I get so angry and so upset. And then I go visit a few dying folks that are really suffering. And it breaks my heart open. Like Isaiah, and like Martin, and like Julian and Norwich. And I realize how silly and petty the things that work me up are. And I'm able to enter in with another person and what's going on in their life and helping them fosters compassion in my own soul. And we have opportunities to do that right here. The Justice and Witness folks are saying Wednesday mornings, 9.30 to 12.30, they need help down at the food bank. So I'm suggesting turn the TV off, put the newspaper down, and go help some people that are really hurting and suffering. And it will foster compassion and liberate us from our own opinions and prejudices and biases as we actually get involved in helping the lives of others. It is the plow to churn up hard-hearted earth around us. And maybe in doing these kinds of things, we might actually encounter the living God that shook Isaiah's world and Merton's world and Julian of Norwich's world. So this is my prayer for us, that we would actually get involved with life, with helping others, in our efforts to become more compassionate and to be reconcilers in a world that needs a lot of both. Amen? And remember, all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. Mother Julian doesn't lie.